0: Hello and welcome to this week's episode of the Holding the Ladder in Sport and Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Tim Rice. This week's guest is Joe Nyland. Joe serves as the athletic director at NCAA Division II Spring Hill College in Mobile, Alabama. He was the head men's basketball coach at both Spring Hill and the University of Mobile for many years. And he also won four conference titles during his run as a head college coach and led his 2004 Mobile team to the NAIA Final Four. He also served as the athletic director at both schools and has a lot of experience and great knowledge to share. So I hope you enjoy the next few minutes. With Joan Island. Greetings, everyone, and welcome to this week's episode of the Holding the Ladder in Sport and Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Tim Rice, and with me today as our guest is longtime friend and uh, incredible coach and administrator. Mobile, Alabama, Joe Nyland. Uh, Joe, welcome to the podcast. And uh, I know a lot of people are going to really enjoy listening to your story and learning more about your climb up the ladder. So welcome to the podcast.
1: Well, great to be here. Glad to be here. And, Thanks.
0: Uh, looking forward to it. Yeah, I, I always enjoy uh, my talks with Joe. And You know, uh, I always tell them, you know, the the first time I ever really saw Joe Nyland was on the sideline uh, at my arch rival college, Spring Hill, uh, and, you know, his first year as head coach, um, Mobile, where I went to school, we we won the two regular season contests, and then in the district championship game at home, Joe brought his Badgers in and uh, beat us Um, I, that's the first I remember of Joe and I thought, man, this guy really knows what he's doing. And uh, obviously many, many years later being a basketball coach and now the athletic director at Spring Hill, but he also was the head coach at Mobile after that. And we'll get into that in a second, but, uh, tell us a little bit about yourself, Joe. Well, I'm a native Western New Yorker who,
1: uh, I guess some people may say a carpetbagger that came South. But, uh, you know, I came I, I came down to Florida in the early 80s and got into the coaching business and, uh, you know, moved to Mobile in 1993 and uh, come from a coaching background. Uncles, my dad, cousins. Uh, athletics is a big part of my family and, uh, you know, just a great profession. Great profession.
0: Yeah, and it's – obviously taking you from Buffalo, New York, uh, a proud native Buffalo uh, resident or uh, native um, down to Florida and then over to the Alabama Gulf Coast uh, where you've been since 1993. Um, You know, Joe is a pretty humble guy and and has a very um, interesting background as far as his family is concerned. Um, He is... uh, I mean, there, there's so many things that you uh, can learn about Joe just uh, by learning about his family background. And, uh, you know, I'm going to bring up uh, one in particular a lot of people uh, would not know about and uh, unless they've really dug in. And it's about the Nyland brothers in World <laughs> War II. Uh, tell us a little bit about your family, and how it connects to Saving Private Ryan.
1: Well, uh, my, my, my uh, great grandmother and grandfather came over from Ireland and moved to Lockport, New York, which is just uh, a little bit north of Buffalo and uh, right on the Erie Canal. My great grandfather was a stonecutter. And, um, you know, help build the locks and rebuild the locks there in Lockport, hence called Lockport. And they had nine children. And one of them, Thomas, was my grandfather. One of the others, Mike, was his brother. And they both moved to Tonawanda, the city of Tonawanda, which is kind of where the canal connected along the Niagara River. And they worked for a Buffalo Steel there, and uh, lived just a few blocks apart. Both had big families. Uh, uh, my great uncle Mike had six children, and my grandfather had thirteen. And uh, you know, so in those days, Tonawanda, like much of Western New York, was was big industry: steel, rubber uh, lumber, uh, ended up being chemicals and all kinds of different things. But, uh, so those families were growing up at the same time and went to the same grammar school, played in the same fields, uh, uh very athletic family. My, my grandfather played in the early pro football era back in the turn of the century. He also was a bare knuckle fighter. And so was my great uncle. And so that's kind of where the sports came from. And uh, so when they all got to high school, the Nyland boys were all played at Tanawanda High School and part of the same teams. And uh, when World War II came about, uh, a couple of my great uncle Mike's boys, uh, Bobby and uh, Eddie, uh, they volunteered and went into the service early. Um, my dad and my uncle Tom—they um, were both playing basketball at Keneshia's college. And my dad was uh, a senior, and when the war really got going, and my uncle Tom was only a sophomore. And then uh, their cousins, my Uncle Mike's other two boys, Fritz and Pete, were also at Canisius and they were, you know, so they ended up getting enlisted or or drafted. So they all went into the war kind of together. And uh, that's how the connection is. And then, of course, what happened was Eddie was in the Army Air Corps over in the South Pacific and he got shot down and was captured in Burma, assumed to be lost at the time. And then uh, Pete and uh, Fritz uh, and Bobby were all uh, fighting in the European theater. And uh, Bobby had already been, he was 82nd airborne and he he was uh, already fought in North Africa because he got in early. But uh, right before D-Day, they all, three of those conven- you know, were together in London for the invasion of Normandy. And it's chronicled in Stephen Ambrose's book, Band of Brothers. And uh, that's where the whole Saving Private Ryan narrative came from. And, and my Uncle Tom uh, uh, was 101st Airborne. And so there's a, a part of the book where and if you follow band of brothers at all there's a character in there skip muck and skip also was a athlete at Tanawanda high school so they all met in a pub in in i think it was london and uh you know the american soldiers were getting all pumped up for the invasion and uh so they all met in a pub and bobby was back from north africa and he was trying to tell them that, you know, this, this war thing is not like playing Kenmore High School or Niagara Falls High School, you know, because they, they had, you know, they were all pumped up, ready to go. He said, no, this is, this is kind of the real deal. Well, anyways, the invasion happened and uh, uh, Pete got killed uh, during D-Day. Uh, And Bobby, who was already lieutenant, he was, and I think it's called Neuavale Plain, which is part of Normandy, he, he was gonna, uh, they were getting the counterattack from the German forces and Bobby uh, told the guys he would, he'd try to hold off the Germans, so they could get the wounded back and back towards the beach, and he got killed. So that's when, uh, you know, it was presumed that Eddie was dead uh, in Burma and Bobby and Pete. So that's when uh, the War Department contacted, and I think this was after the Sullivan brothers were all lost on that ship, that the War Department contacted the chaplain, uh, Father Sampson, and he went and got Fritz, who did not want to leave. He did not want to he, you know, like naturally, like anybody else is like, hey, my brothers died here. I'm going to do the best. So but he came back and great story. He went on and became an oral surgeon, uh, went to Georgetown and, and uh, uh, dental school and became an oral surgeon. So that's the connection.
0: How about that? Well, and, you know, that is I, I bring that up because I'm sure a lot of people who have seen the movie um uh, highly uh, uh, thought of movie about uh that uh, you know in this case fictional for private ryan but of course you throw an island in there and um that, that's interesting well so uh you're, and then you're just a, not but my uncle tom who was not mentioned in
1: the book but went on and became a pretty well-known basketball coach in the small college at LeMoyne. And then was the only athletic director coach slash coach to sit on the infractions committee of the NCAA. He, um, fought in D-Day, the battle of Holland. And he's mentioned in several books. Uh, he was in uh, the battle of the bulge and, uh, was wounded in the bulge and almost lost his arm, but came back and then played college basketball, finished his career. So,
0: (laughs) well, and, and the, the story of course, of, uh, of, um, really the coaching tree, uh, of your family, you know, uh, is, it's amazing. And of course your son is now, uh, coaching right there at Spring Hill as an assistant. And then, um, you know, you have a nephew who is coaching as well, um, as well as one uh, cousin of yours who uh, happened to be uh, head coach at some major Division One programs in the Cleveland Cavaliers, uh, John Beeline. But um, so when you think about your start to getting into sports, obviously, you're surrounded by people that were heavily involved. Your dad was involved uh, within the NBA. Can you talk a little bit about that? Well, yeah, my, my dad, uh, he, he actually
1: in, in a, he played in what was called the World Basketball Tournament professionally back right before he went into the war. Uh, he was kind of an older guy that through the Depression kind of bounced around playing in different leagues and colleges. So he, he was very well known in the basketball community and played with a lot of guys that were early NBA players. Uh, after the war he by the time he got out of the war he was he was in his 30s so uh, his playing career uh, he he did try to play for uh, Sheboygan Redskins but he said when they didn't pay him he decided that was not the route to go he got into coaching and but uh, he had a lot of connections so he He coached in college for, uh, at Canisius College back in the late 40s, early 50s, back in their heyday, and then he coached in the old Eastern League for a little bit, and then got into the NBA with the Buffalo Braves, uh, early expansion team in 1970, and worked there for several years, and uh, so he was, he was involved, he coached. In the Eastern League, he coached Larry Costello, who won an NBA championship, was great friends, and Hubie Brown and people like that. So he he was very well-known in the basketball community.
0: Yeah. Well, and, and obviously within your own family, you know, your siblings are all – we have a lot of siblings involved in, in college athletics as we speak or have been. Uh, can you elaborate a little bit about on about that?
1: Well, yeah, I mean, it's kind of funny going back to my dad as a young kid growing up, you know, you're just hanging around the gym, whatever gym, whether it was the odd Buffalo or whatever, and, and, and playing basket and shooting basketballs. You don't know who Mr. Iba really is or Pete Newell, you know, and when I got older, I'm like, what an idiot I was <laughs> not to take advantage, you know. Uh, of these things. But, uh, and, and my dad was kind of older. So like my brother and I, my brother, Dave, who is a uh, coach at Penn state Baron, uh long time coach. I mean, he's closing in, I think 30 years there, uh, very successful. And uh, you know, we didn't, we had to bring my dad down one time to Barron and have him go over some two-guard stuff, which John called two-guard stuff, but the weave offense, and it was really fascinating. And uh, because we never – you know, I saw his teams play when he was coaching high school in the 60s, and then, you know, he didn't coach the Braves. He was director of college scouting. So, you know, the only other team I saw him coach was an AAU team that played the Russians before the 72 Olympics. And uh, this AAU team he coached, only coached three games, but I'd be at every workout. I was like 14, 15 years old. Uh, Had Darnell Hillman, Dr. Dunk there with the Indiana Pacers. Had a guy named Julius Irving. And, you know, Stan Love, Kevin Love's dad, several players like that. But I remember in the car coming home saying, he said, what do you think? I said, well, you know, that guy Irving's a pretty good player. (laughs) (laughs) and he gave me this weird look because he was with the Braves at the time and they were trying to entice Irving away from the University of Massachusetts not to go to the Virginia Squires but to sign with the Buffalo Braves and uh, he's like yeah no kidding he's pretty good isn't he (laughs) (laughs) yeah I'll say (laughs) you know and then it's like oh doctor you knew Dr. J I'm like yeah I rebounded for him you know I didn't know who he was then he was just some other college player that I was rebounding for
0: oh my word well and to have a start like that and and then of course uh to continue to climb the ladder yourself through the years of being I mean you've had a lot of people who have held a ladder for you, obviously your dad, but who are some people have held a ladder for you as you've climbed to great success? Well, I I was very fortunate to be around
1: some really good coaches and work for some really good coaches. Um, You know, in the very beginning, actually when I wasn't sure what I was going to do, because, you know, I I didn't, I didn't, want to really go into the coaching business just because it was like overwhelmingly around me but there was a guy Neil DeLeo in in Buffalo that ran the YMCA and Neil said hey he said I'm putting this and it wasn't AAU back then it was just he goes I'm putting this this young team 13 14 year old kids together would you like you know coach them a little bit and I said, yeah, I'll do it. And we went and we won. Marine Midland Bank sponsored a tournament and we won the tournament. And I can't say it was my coaching because Neil, Neil put together a pretty good team. <laughs> I just rolled them out there and we won. Uh, but, you know, that kind of spiked my interest just dealing with, with, with kids. And then a guy named Mike McGuire who played for my father in college and coached me as a youth. Uh, he got me into coaching some baseball teams, uh, which I was trying to play baseball and basketball at the same time. And Mike said, oh, you can coach this team. You'll have time. And just watching the development of kids really helped. So that spurred when I got to Florida, um, you know, cause I wanted to try to be able to do some on my own without that, oh, you're one of Joe Nylons, you know, uh, a guy named Gordon Gibbons, who uh, Gordon is a uh, basketball legend in Florida. And uh, at the time, he was just a pretty young coach who had actually just left South Florida and was taken back over high school job at Tampa Catholic. So Gordon and I got together and uh, hit it off. And Gordon, uh, he is a phenomenal coach, but just a basketball junkie. I mean, 24-7, and that, that kind of fit with my thinking, and um, we really hit it off, and then, you know, Gordon and I worked for a couple of years at, at, at Tampa Catholic, and he was also the head coach at Team Florida, which was one of the really first AAU teams in the South that was a, like a national-type program. This was before the shoe companies and all that, so I was able to to get involved with team Florida and AAU stuff and got to know a lot of the big basketball people in the state of Florida, like Jim Haley and shaky Rodriguez and, and just, uh, you know, Jan Bennett, Glenn Wilkes, just, just being around Jim, Jim, uh, Harley over at, uh, Eckerd college, just started to get around a lot of people, Jack Coit, and, and so I was learning basketball and, and, and networking all at the same time. And then Donnie Owens at Florida college that had a good junior college program. He, he kind of, I'd got to know him and he hired me as an assistant coach at the, it was a two-year college level. They're four-year now. And then it just kind of took off from there. Uh, Richard Schmidt worked for him. Who's, you know, a coaching legend. He's, Richard's still coaching. He's 70, I don't know, 78 years old. He's still the head coach, university of Tampa, but all those guys were all different, but all very good. And, and, you know, I couldn't have been, you know, I couldn't have drawn it out any better as far as who, you know, if I wanted to learn from people, because, and the interesting thing, all those guys, especially that I worked for Donnie and Richard and Gordon, all really started in the high school ranks and then went on and became successful college coaches. So they had really learned from the bottom up. And uh, I think that was very helpful.
0: Well, I need to bring up one person that just came to mind. And again, if you guys know, you know, there's a lot of stories behind Joe Nyland. Uh, One in particular would be the, the sister, the nun. Uh, Okay. You got to share that, please uh from the the catholic school there in well um my aunt uh francis
1: sister francis we called her sister tom because initially in the old days they used the male name when they were in the order so she was one of my dad's sisters and they were my dad's sisters probably were more competitive than my dad and his brother. So she had a school uh, and she taught all over the country. She was in the South for a number of years, but she came up and she got a parish school on the corner of Genesee and Rich Street, which was a large German neighborhood that became pretty much African American in the, in the sixties. And it was a good school. And she, she ran a tight ship, but she wasn't happy with the direction of the basketball program. So she, kind of talked me into coaching and, uh, and like I, I said in the article with Eric Brady, when he talked to me, it was like working for George Steinbrenner. <laughs> Unless you want it all, it wasn't good enough. And, uh, but it was, we had some good years and, and we didn't, it was funny uh, when I took the Spring Hill job, I didn't have a gym. We never had a gym at St. Mary's of Sorrows. we practiced, Anywhere we could find or anywhere Sister Frances could hustle up. And she was the master at hustling up a gym. And uh, But we had good teams and it was really, again, watching young people develop and, and interacting, was
0: it really helped me, again, spur interest in coaching. Yeah, I had to bring that up because I I've always been intrigued by that and how tough she was. I I think that's really uh that's that's so awesome to hear. Well, she um,
1: she would ride the officials who many of them she had taught in school and I'd have to tell her sister you're not helping. Us.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, and and that and like I think that um, I've always said that uh, basketball coaches as uh, really basketball coaches in general there's some great storytellers out there um and uh i i've always enjoyed having conversations with you about some of the stories that you've you know from the, your past and everything well of course that's led to uh your your current role at spring hill college um uh, there in mobile alabama and you know, you uh, you were the head coach there starting in 1993 and then you left uh, and spent 20 years at um, University of Mobile, my alma mater, and then uh, had the opportunity to go back to Spring Hill and NCAA Division II. Uh, it's been a challenging time over the last 14 to 16 months, but, uh, you know, what, what are some of the biggest challenges you face day-to-day in your job as the athletic director at Spring Hill?
1: Well, you know, the daily challenges of, you know, that were routine for so many years, you know, making sure that your, your facilities were, were working right. And, you know, managing your, your staff and, 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 you know, making sure your budgets were in line and those type of things all got thrown out of the window, March, 2020 with this COVID thing. And that's become the biggest battle. Uh, you know, what it, it just, um, you know, we thought we were through it last spring, but now it appears we're back in the middle of it again, with testing and, and trying to manage that. I think everybody's figured out you just got to move forward uh, and hopefully get people vaccinated. And, and you, you test now and make sure that you're, you're managing the health and welfare of the student athletes and, the, and your staff. But it's become, you know, like this bubble over the top of you that you have to, to, to look into every day. And, um, you know, it's, it's added another layer of challenges uh, to, to what you already do. And in small college athletics, you know, the challenges are, are, are there every day that are, you know, not just winning and losing, but trying to meet budgets and trying to make sure. Your games are going off right. and You have everything you need to do to make your team successful. Right. But, um, yeah, it's that right now is the biggest challenge. Nobody's ever faced this before. So it's not, it's not something you can call somebody up, which I always did for years when you talk about holding the ladder. I had so many people I could call and say, hey,
0: how do you handle
1: this? You know, nobody knows on this one.
0: Yeah, no, no, you're right. Absolutely uh, unprecedented. And, you know, uh, one of the challenges I'm sure too, because of COVID, it, you know, and you talked about budgets is really the financial side of it. And of course, in a small college, I mean, I'm sure the financial side, even without COVID is is a major big, is a huge challenge, I would assume.
1: Yeah. And and you know, last year, that was why a number of, People, it wasn't just the fact that that there was COVID out there, it was the inability to access the testing either financially or actually get it and implement it. Uh, that's changed a little bit. Costs have come down and 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 there's money freed up. But you know, that's still, you know, if you're University of Alabama, you know, you don't worry about cost of test. You're gonna play. Uh, but, you know, most small colleges and even division I schools that don't have those resources have to look at, you know, managing that cost. But uh, thank thankfully, the tests have come way down in costs and there's federal government's really helped out.
0: Right. Yeah. And, uh, you know, you and I spoke just the other day about the challenge of being in the SIAC, the league you're in. And uh how many states is that again? Uh you said eight, nine, how many was it?
1: It's seven states. Seven, seven states. states. And you know, and the way the NCA is doing that this year, uh, you know, they're kind of leaving it up to the local uh city and county uh health departments and how you're managing your things so you know you got seven states and there's seven different you know legislative bodies all trying to you know covid's become somewhat political so you have you know th- those challenges also but you also have the public health agencies in all those states and different requirements that can be be placed on so it's it's definitely challenging
0: Yeah. Yeah. And well, you know, one the next question is kind of related to the skills that are necessary for success as a sports professional, you know, you, you uh, have told me stories about when you got to Spring Hill College and how you were not only the head men's basketball coach, you were kind of like the dean of students and you're doing all these different positions. And, um, and then you were also uh, you, know, you spent some time, you know, of course, athletic director at University of Mobile, and you were doing a lot of different things. And now, in your role as athletic director, not coaching anymore, um, at least in the sense of being a basketball head coach, you're coaching coaches. But what are skills that are needed for success that you think of uh, as a sport professional?
1: Well, you know, a couple things, uh, and again. Very fortunate, I was around and associated with a lot of good administrators. Uh, You know, uh, Donnie Owens was EAD. He was also the basketball coach at Florida College. We had a really good principal at Tampa Catholic, Frank Scaglione. Uh, I worked for, you know, Hal Smeltzley at Florida Southern. He was our athletic director. Hal was... You know, one of the best athletic directors I've ever been around. Um, when I got up here, uh, the president here at, at, at Spring Hill at the time was a guy, Bill Rewalk, Father Bill Rewalk, who had been chancellor and president at Santa Clara. Uh, and in our conference, we had at the time, the old Gulf Coast Athletic Conference, we had Dr. Thomas Hall as our commissioner. But, you know, my crosstown rival, Bill Elder, was the president of the league. Uh, Steve Knight, who was the athletic director, William Carey. I observed, you know, I, I'm not a book learner. I'm an observer. I observe. That's how I learn. And I just watch all these people uh, operate and how they ran things. And, how, and then you've got to put your own personality on it. But I think the biggest key. that that it's communication and it's being able to communicate what needs to be done, how it needs to, how you want it done or what you think needs to be done and, and, you know, surround yourself with good people and, and figure that out. And, and don't, you know, don't micromanage, you know, it's kind of like players. You don't, you want to teach them how to play and then you gotta let them play. And, and the really good ones will play really well. And that's what I think being successful in management, that's what you got to find good people, kind of give them some direction and then let them use their talents.
0: Yeah. And, you know, when we talk about communication, you know, one of the things that, you know, spoken about in past podcasts, but, uh, you know, God gave us two ears and one mouth and, you know, being able to, to listen and to, of course, you talked about the observation, you know, observing Coach Elder and, and Coach Knight at William Carey and, uh, and others in their roles uh, as athletic directors and leaders. Um, you know, I do think that being able to listen to those people around you and uh, take what they're saying, you don't have to take everything they say, but, you know, to at least consider it. I mean, how important is listening?
1: Oh, it's it's huge, and that's what you know when I first came here to the GCAC because I did it with Coach Smelsley, and you know being an assistant coach, you really don't say anything in meetings when you're <laughs> when you're you the AD's talking certainly. But you know I got around Hal, and I would I would pick his brain at Florida Southern just like I really started to pick my dad and uncle's brains when I got you know smart enough to figure out they knew what they were talking about. <laughs> but you know I really watched Bill Elder. Um, because, you know, I got into the league. I'm like, well, okay, William Carey and, and Mobile are running this operation, and they're really good. Why are they good? And, you know, so I – and I, you know, watched them and talked to them and figured out, and, you know, Steve was a little bit younger. Bill had already – you know, Bill had already been a veteran AD, and he really, you know, one of the sharpest guys. You know, you figure that out real quickly. But, you know, just watching how they manage things and how they did things and how they work through things and just ask certain questions and really listen, you know, ask what you want to hear, want to know, and then listen. Again, you don't, like you said, you don't have to take it all, but, you know, find out what their logic is behind why they do certain things and, you know, then you try to fit it into your personality. Yeah,
0: I, I know, and Joe knows this very well that, you know, Bill Elder, it's even hard to say Bill, uh, Coach Elder, um, is my mentor. And uh, he's the guy who I was very fortunate at Mobile to, to be around every single day uh, as a student um, assistant coach for him for three years. And, you know, a lot of what I learned came from observation and seeing how he did things. I'll never forget, he always uh, said that, you know, while we were a small college, he, he wanted to ha- have a you know a Division One mentality when it came to the things we did, and you know if you ever uh, for those people that would come to our games back in the day, you know we would have you know far gym rocking when and it'd be marketed inside with posters and media guides, and there'd always be something going on, and uh, I always appreciated that, and I learned so much from him on that kind of stuff, and it's uh, served me well. I know that um, one. One question I have, and, you know, a lot of the guests on the podcast, it's like, you know, I don't like the word networking, you know, but I mean, how important has that been for you as far as climbing the ladder? How, how how do you approach it? I mean, are you still a big networker or were you ever a big networker?
1: I think it's real important. And I don't want to, you know, I don't have a negative connotation in networking, but I think it's it's kind of what we've already covered. You need to observe and watch people and, and learn uh, and learn from, you know, and there's now with the Internet and television and, and everything, there's so many other ways to learn. But uh, it, it is important. I mean, I can pick up the phone. And I got so many people I can call that, you know, if I have serious questions about something, I can get feedback. I can call bill elder and just run something by him. He's going to give me a really good answer, you know? And, uh, I have a lot of people and, and that's what networking's about. And it, because, you know, there are people, uh, and, and I think today we dismiss older people, uh, but you know, you call somebody up who's been through the war of being an athletic director or a coach or an administrator and, you know, just say, Hey, I got this issue. What do you think? You know, without getting too detailed and, and usually they've been through something similar and they can say, Hey, this is what I shouldn't have done, but I did, <laughs> it didn't work. So you don't want to try that. Uh, you know, there's things like that that I think are really important. and And I did that, Uh, There was an example when I was the dean of students here and I had no idea what I was doing and we had a major issue came up. I called the AD at LeMoyne College at the time, uh, Coach Rockwell, who was the baseball coach. I called Jim Harley at Eckerd and I called Hal Smelsley. And I got three different answers to the same question, but they were all good. You know, then I just had to figure out, okay, how am I going to attack this problem? And uh, I, I had a guy, the late Don Bostic, who was the assistant coach at Tampa with me. Don played at, uh, at University of Florida, went on and got his doctorate, and Don was really smart. And I would call Don. He was an administrator at LIU, and then he, he was on in the junior college out, Ranger College, El Paso College. I would call Don and Don was always very analytical and he would break things down and, you know, you could bounce well back and forth. And I, I think that's what I think what people, you know, you can't do it by yourself. And there are people out there that I like to use, not resources I can read online, I like to use live
0: resources that I can talk to.
1: And uh, I think that's what networking is
0: for. Yeah. Uh, well, and I agree with that. And you know, to, too many times, and for those folks listening, uh, you know, one of the that are just in this that are aspiring sport professionals, you know, this is uh, this is an industry where if you think you're going to do it all alone, uh, think again. This is a yeah. this is a business that is a uh, is focused on. You know, leaning into people that are around you and that can really be success, uh, be, help you be successful. You know, um, you can't be everything to everyone. And I think that that's a, a challenge for many people that are in leadership and sport because uh, when you take everything on, that leads to burnout and it leads to challenging times uh, for your own family, your own health, and everything else. And I, that's why I agree with you. I think networking is relationships, It's it's knowing that, uh, you know, you could reach out to uh, someone uh, that you respect or someone that you want to get some advice from. And I, I know from my experience through the years, I mean, I've reached out to you. I've reached out to Coach Elder. I've reached out to many different people to ask for feedback, guidance, advice. And uh, and it's been kind of neat to be able to learn, um, you know, very fortunate to be able to Assist you on a voluntary basis from a distance, uh, doing some scouting work in your final years there at Mobile. And it was great. It was really neat to be able to learn kind of how you did things from the standpoint of your basketball program, but also knowing that, you know, you were open to somebody from the outside, um, you know, providing advice and and feedback too.
1: Yeah, I think some of my. uh best memories in coaching. And, 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 you know, a lot of people say, could you be an assistant coach? I loved being an assistant coach and coach Gibbons and I and coach Schmidt and coach, Young, we'd sit for hours and go back and forth and argue and, and get mad at each other and, and, and discussing basketball and, uh, and, and our game plans and, uh, you know, <laughs> breaking down film and, and, uh, you know, I, I again networking to me is the same way. I mean, you're you're bouncing information back and forth and trying to come up with a a solution. And I think uh, Tim and you 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 know you you're another resource I've used over the years, not just for scouting but for a lot of things. But uh, you know, there sometimes there's not one answer. And there's not a solution to every problem. You know, you do the best you can or what what's best with what you got to work with. And uh, you know, and that's probably something that you know took me a while to learn when I was younger, because you always want an answer. And unfortunately, in life, there's not always an answer to every problem. There's the best possible solution. But sometimes that doesn't work. <laughs> I think coaches are the best at it because we, we have to change sometimes
0: right out of what we thought was going to work really well. Yeah. And, and, you know, even just being able, sometimes you can't get those answers and you got like, Hey, look, I, I got to roll with this. Let's go. And you have to make a decision. I know I've uh, you know, in some respects have done that over the last few weeks in my, my roles. Uh and, and I do think, well, and one thing too, you're surrounded there at Spring Hill by <laughs> some hall of fame coaches. I mean, you, got, <laughs> you've got some people like three people in particular that, you know, that have, that are some of the best in their industry at any level. Can you talk a little bit about that?
1: Oh yeah. I mean, you know, we have the, the all time winningest volleyball coach in collegiate history, men or women. And, uh Peggy Martin. And and I remember when Peggy first came back and retired, moved back to Mobile, she brought her Spring Hill team out uh, to Mobile. And I was game manager watching and, and they just got absolutely, we smashed them Tim. The Rams hammered them that night. And, uh, but I watched her coach. I watched how her team came in the building. I watched how they reacted to her. And I told coach Campbell, the coach at Mobile, I said, I'm going to tell you something right now. It's not going to be long before they're pretty good. <laughs> and it, it didn't take her long to get pretty good. And, uh, you know, but she, she has a certain style, a certain method, and, and she's very good at it. And then of course we have Steve Kittrell, who's coaching our softball, but a hall of fame baseball coach, at South Alabama. And, and he does things his way. And then Coach Sims, our baseball coach here for 35, 36 years, who's closing in on a 1,000 wins. Uh, You know, Frank. Frank is the most laid-back coach in the history of coach. And baseball can be that way. But he he has a certain style of how – and he's been successful. He's had great teams and players react to him. And, you know – one of his guys, uh, Joe Morris, who was here, showed up back in July with his family. Just couldn't wait to see Coach and and uh, you know it's just everybody does it a little different and but most of them are all great communicators.
0: Yeah, and and obviously that's led to uh, all that success. And of course they've they've uh, been around the block too. And uh, you know of course uh, I remember in college when Coach Sims was the baseball coach at Spring Hill and all those uh, great games over at the pit, which uh, I still think is one of the neatest places to watch a baseball game anywhere. It's really neat. Um, by the way, for anyone listening, the pit is, is uh, Spring Hill, Spring Hill's home baseball venue. And it, I mean, Babe Ruth played in the pit. Uh, yeah,
1: Hank, Hank Aaron, Satchel Page, the Bowling brothers. It's been in It's the, they say the oldest continuous used college baseball field, but I think it's got to be one of the oldest collegiate athletic fields because they were playing stuff in the 1850s here. <laughs> uh, and, uh, you know, there's a story that we, the three students uh, from Cuba who went to school here actually brought baseball to Cuba when they left. How about that?
0: Say that's something I've never heard of. That's really something else.
1: So it's yeah, it's uh, it's really a unique venue, uh, and it's you know, is it, we had some we've had some great, great games here versus University of Mobile.
0: Oh yeah, absolutely. That rivalry was is it, always been. Well, it's very dear uh, to my heart. Uh, every year, I always look forward to any time we played the Badgers uh, as a student, and uh, so yeah, it's it's. Uh, I I know that the facilities have changed there at Spring Hill since you were first there. You know, going from playing at St. Paul's Episcopal's gym to having the, uh, the Outlaw Center there. Um, you know, uh, and and I'm I'm sure that having a facility like that and just really uh, and also the golf course. You know, I mean, you probably have a lot of challenges in terms of the facilities there, I would assume.
1: Yeah. um, I oversee the golf course now as part of my position on the cabinet. And, you know, we do. I mean, I was out, as you know, our soccer and our rugby slash field for track and field border the historic Avenue of the Oaks, which is a beautiful setting. It's it library field where I say it's just beautiful matter of fact I got to go out to the soccer game here in a little bit but those beautiful oak trees are not great for growing grass or they're very difficult in Mobile Alabama to prune back too much because people don't like you to prune oak trees so you know, we have constant battle. And I had uh, the arborists from the city out there trying to figure out how we could move that oak tree limb back a little bit. So we have a clear path for the soccer ball. And, uh, and we don't want our rugby players being clotheslined by an oak branch. (laughs) But, uh, you know, we have those issues. And, and, uh, you know, the golf course, which is close to hundred years old uh, sits in the side of the hill and it's, it's really come back great and golf's picking back up, but you got a tremendous amount of rain here, drainage issues. And, but like I tell everybody around here, I'm not fighting to get a gym every night. Like I did when I first got back here and, you know, Tim, that year we came over and spanked the Rams uh, in the championship game. <laughs> We played. I think there were eight conference home games because Mobile went sixteen and O. So there was eight conference home games. We played one in St. Paul's. We only had one true home game on what we considered our home court, and uh, you know, and think we. I think we went thirteen and three in the league. We still won a lot of games. We played at McGill. We played at Davidson, we played at South, we played at Baker, we played at the Civic Center. We were all over the place. And uh, I tell our coaches now when they complain, oh, you know, I have enough gym
0: time. We didn't, we didn't even have a gym. <laughs> well, you did, but it wasn't – you wouldn't necessarily call it a uh, – much of a gym. What was the – Oh, Quinlan, the, the, the old Yeah, Quinlan, yeah all, right. Oh,
1: that – that was a closet. That wasn't a. Gym.
0: <laughs> Absolutely. Um, so, as we're closing, uh, what what's one piece of advice that you give to someone who's just getting into uh, a career in sport in any segment? I mean, what's one piece of advice you give? Well,
1: and and well, I get that question. I get people in here all the time that want to want to start out, and number one, you 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 really have to love it because it it it's a. Um, it's not a job. It's, it's a lifestyle. It's a passion. You're not going to work nine to five or eight to four. You're going to work weekends and nights. You're, uh, you're, you're always invested in it. And, you know, so if you're getting in to make a lot of money and you're getting in it to work 40 hours a week, this isn't the job. And, uh, you gotta have a passion for it. You gotta have a passion for building people up and helping them get along in life. And you gotta be willing to put in the time. And yeah. there's so many other rewards beyond salaries when you do that. And uh it's it's a great place too for a family. And a lot of people don't realize that. You're you know, I grew up around a gym, my kids grew up around, I got Coaches here whose kids are here, you know, it's a great place to raise a family because the values in athletics are very, very strong.
0: Yeah, yeah, I know. Uh, Great advice, by the way. I know that a lot of people look at the industry and they think of it as being a glitzy, glamorous uh, thing, which it isn't. Um, I know young, young sport professionals think, oh, wow, you know, I'm looking forward to being that coach walking across the sidelines to go shake the hand of the opposing coach in their suit and tie uh, uh, or whatever. And and having all the fans in the stands and, you know, that uh, that is it's not that that doesn't happen, but uh, there's so much uh, work that goes on behind the scenes in, in this industry. And, uh, it is a sacrificial thing. You know, I, I look back to my years as a student assistant for coach elder at mobile. And, uh, you know, I was spending all sorts. Of, I mean, I spent so much time in far gym. I mean, I'm surprised I didn't have like a dorm room in there. You know, I was in there, uh, you know, 30, 40 hours a week. It felt like, uh, you know, with practice practices and, you know, doing all the laundry and getting everything ready to go for games and practices and whatnot. And, you know, I know that uh, when I look back on those, I have so much fondness for those years of being not only at uh, Mobile, but also at Enterprise State with Sid Elliott and and uh, all the different things that I've done since then. It's uh, it's amazing how you can put all that together and, and say, man, this is the body of work and this is who I am. You know, it's well, I
1: found on YouTube the other day, uh, I think it was a year before, two years before I got here the mobile spring hill game at mobile and there was a very young assistant coach i, I recognized anderson Lagon. but i'm like god tim looked young man
0: <laughs> yeah you know and I, I actually uploaded that video i, I had uh, from power productions and that was the the uh, famous for some infamous for others uh 72-70 win over the Badgers. Uh, Patrick Robinson uh, hitting the game winner like with uh, about a second left. Yeah, Left-handed. great shot. That oh, a man. a shot. Yeah, and, uh, but yeah, I know that was many, many years ago. Uh, 1992, uh, and, um, but those games were so, like, I, I think back to those games and they'd close the doors at, you know, the tip off of the women's game. And, you know, I remember just being just, amazed at how many people you know were all people were hanging all over the place literally hanging from the rafters somewhat up on the balcony there at far and we had so many great games and yeah yeah i was a very young that's a many many years ago think about it that was 29 years ago joe so uh it's hard to believe it's been that long but i i have so many fond memories of it and uh i'm glad you got a chance to watch some of those uh clips i watched the whole game Oh my gosh. Incredible. Like, you know, and when you watch a game like that, you get a chance to see the greatness of many of the players that were on the teams. And I know many of the kids, uh, kids, they're not kids anymore, people my age, but uh, folks on your team, like Ronald Gomez, who was a walking story in of himself. And then Mark Allen and, you know, PJ Thalen and all those guys, um, you know, Kirk DePriest and Mark Flint and, uh, you know um, so yeah I just uh, I know Matter of fact,
1: those guys Tim are all getting together in Montana this weekend uh, just as a group and uh, wow. which is an amazing thing that they're that tight together those Spring Hill guys
0: yeah the power the power of sport I mean it really is yep. the, the relationships like we're talking about now re- along those lines the last question of course you held a ladder for those guys how do you hold the ladder for others
1: well that's that's a great question i mean uh i think by the your example and uh how you carry yourself and and you know uh, what what do you say you can't demand respect you command respect that people you know it's like when i watch those other people like a a Bill Elder or a, Let or a uh, you know, Hal Smeltzley, I saw, I respected them for who they were and how they, so that that's how they held the ladder for me. They didn't know they were doing that. And so I think it's how you carry yourself, your integrity, you know, and, and people will know and respect you. And then hopefully that you give them something by the way you conduct yourself.
0: Yeah, I agree with that. I think that too many people, I mean, really, I also believe that it's a genuine thing you know, when people know that you're genuine about what you're doing and it's not about what you get in return, that's that's in essence is what holding ladders all about, because it's not about what you get in return. It's about trying to help people get to a place where they never thought they could ever get to. And uh, and that comes from example that comes from you know, many of the people you just brought up. And of course, uh, you know, for me, people like the Joan Islands of the world and, and uh, of course, Coach Elder and, and other people. And, you know, uh, I appreciate what you've done uh, for so many years or so many people. And uh, I appreciate you coming on. So how, how would you like to close today's podcast? Well,
1: uh, I have to run to a soccer game. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. I got game management duties. We're collecting tickets for the first time at Spring Hill soccer history, which I don't know how we're going to do that at library field, but we're going to pull it off. Uh, I got cameras going up. I I, I'm jumping off this right into my job again, but I appreciate (laughs) everything, Tim, Uh, you know, and, 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 you know, I think if people want to get in sports. You know, you just got to jump in and love it. And I appreciate everything you've done. You do for others too. I really enjoyed it.
0: Thank you so much. And uh, enjoy that soccer game. Uh, you know, and 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 you're going to hear something you've probably never heard from a mobile alum. Let's go, Badgers. <laughs> All right. You bet. Well, thanks, Joe. And uh, thanks, everyone, for listening to this week's episode. We look forward to seeing you this next Monday. Have a great week. Thanks for listening. And until next week, I challenge you to hold a ladder for someone to climb to greater heights than they ever thought possible.